this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Okay, it's episode two. No, it's not, James. Get used to the structure. It's episode three of the mini-series, the new mini-series on Safety FM, the Safety 1, Safety 2 mini-series. And we're talking to Kelvin Gen, the one, the only Kelvin Gen that was in the room when they coined the phrase safety differently. Oh my God. Let's jump into the intro and I'll tell you more about it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risplum. What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is a YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to change the perception of health and safety on YouTube and the podcast. So if you're new here, hit those crazy buttons. Let's get into this conversation then. This conversation with Kelvin Gen. He was in the room with our next guest on the mini-series when they coined the phrase safety differently. He was there with Sydney Decker. He's been there through this journey of safety differently. He's one of the, the fathers, the grandfathers, whatever we want to call it, of safety differently. And he's still doing it now. And a great work with his business. And you can check all of that out in the description below. All the links and everything are down there for you to get. So there's there's nothing for me to, for me to say, Kelvin introduces himself in the podcast so i don't need to try and try and bastardize that because i'll probably do a terrible job so let's jump into this conversation with kelvin again uh, i'll say good morning kelvin but it's uh, it's afternoon for you over there in australia but welcome to the podcast uh, thanks james it could be morning because it's still dark here so uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll interpret it as morning does it be winter for you now is that right yeah we, um, we're in melbourne we're having a winter's winter at the moment, a proper Melbourne winter. It probably, you know, doesn't compare um, so much to uh, winter in the UK, but yeah. uh, certainly down in the single figure figure temperatures with uh, lots of rain. Down into single figures. Well, I didn't figure it get that cold. I thought summer for Australia was like instead of it being forty degrees, it was now like thirty degrees. Yeah, no, no, we're down middle of winter, and it's um, you know probably uh, at the moment about eight degrees. Eight degrees. That's warm. We'd have our shorts on <laughs> in eight degrees. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, I joke about it. My, my, my best friend, he, he genuinely would. He wears shorts all year round. Like never, even middle of winter, it could be snowing outside. He still wears shorts. I just, I don't get it. Anyway, why don't you uh, give us well, all a man committed to a, to a principle. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, sometimes I think it's just stubbornness. <laughs> it's nothing to do with the temperature. He's actually freezing his ass off. <laughs> Oh, why don't you uh, give us uh, an introduction to yourself, Kelvin, and um, and then we'll go from there. Thanks, James. Uh, look, a, 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 sh- a short um, background. I've been, I've been working uh, in safety, uh, uh, well, it's close on 40 years now. Um, so uh, I've seen the evolution of safety through many different uh, phases and uh, themes and theories uh, through that process. I began my career uh, in the military, uh, in the Air Force, uh, looking at trying to uh, keep uh, military troops uh, safe uh, in field deployments and active zones. So that was 
uh, a really interesting place to test the, the principles of safety in difficult uh, terms and concepts. Uh, following that, I've then moved out into the logistics industry. I've worked in pharmaceuticals. Um, I've uh, also uh, worked as a global GM for a major um, engineering business doing uh, things like construction of mine sites and infrastructure projects all over, over the world. Uh, I've been on the board of uh, New South Wales Health uh, in charge of clinical quality and safety across the New South Wales uh, uh, health system. And uh, after all of that, decided um, I wanted to uh, look at um, how we could share the ideas and learnings of a range of different people of what really did work in practice and what didn't work in practice uh, by starting up um, Art of Work uh, with a number of other people, uh, uh, which uh, included uh, myself and Mark McLaren and, and Professor Sidney Decker. And that's uh, what we've been doing for the last five years. Awesome. Quite a, quite a nice background that is, isn't it? That's a, quite a lot of nice, lovely roles to kind of reel off. A lot of achievements. Well done. Yeah, it's ha little hat tip to you. I've so seen, I've seen the, the best, the, the best and the worst of it, James. Yeah, <laughs> so, I bet. Uh, <laughs> I bet you have. Uh, and such is life, I suppose, isn't it? Um, yeah. So you mentioned about those practical examples and, and kind of those practical, um, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And I think, I think that is something that we, I think we'll probably heavily touch on today. I think that's really important. I think from speaking from my own kind of experience, when we're talking about safety one and safety two, safety differently, hot, whatever we want to call all of these, you know, different academia kind of based idea it is exactly that I, I read the books i listen to podcasts i listen to conversations webinars and and i always come off the back of it being like well that's all well and good we we, we should talk about uh, capacity instead of you know uh, likelihood and severity we should talk yeah. about learning instead of incident and accidents and stuff like that and it's like but what does that actually look like um and i think i think that's the, the power of some of these conversations i've been having recently um, but anyway, to, to start off, let's just clarify um, if we could just probably go with like your kind of description of safety differently, safety two, and, and kind of how it differs in, in your opinion. I think that will probably set our conversation going forward. Yeah, look, um, I think it's really interesting. There's been lots of discussion uh, around this. And firstly, um, there's a lot of crossover you know, between these labels of um, safety too and safety differently and safety differently uh, in a way is a way of uh, collecting together a range of different uh, ideas but it's really been built out of um, the principles of uh, resilience engineering, uh, the worker of Holnagel uh, and Decker um, uh, in particular. Um, and uh, but it's, it's interesting what we say, we, we, we sort of look at these, these terms and the, the, these labels and uh, and sort of talk about them being uh, the new ideas in safety. And I think what we've thought about in safety differently is actually going back and looking at the old ideas um, that really worked and bringing them back uh, into mm. prominence. And I think that's what we saw in safety is a, is a drift away from some really interesting and proven um, practices and, and methods. Um, and we drifted into this process of behavioural based processes where 
we arrived at the position that the only thing we were trying to fix was um, the person that needed to be controlled. So we started to see the person as the problem rather than the solution. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is when we look at safety, if we want, you know, whilst it is based on those sort, sort of principles, it is also, you know, deeply based in some of the ideas like uh, Deming uh, in the, uh, uh, the quality management thinking out of the 60s and 70s. Uh, and in terms of that Deming thing, uh, theory, Deming was very much centred about the person at the front line was the solution that you needed to harness. And that's really become... Um, the, the predominant idea in safety differently is going back to the people that do the work and trying to understand how do you help them to succeed to do the task that we're putting before them, the, uh, achieve the expectations and the outputs um, that uh, the organisation is uh, desiring them to achieve. Um, so uh, it's, it's about going back to some tested and proven principles and bringing them forward again. Mm. I like that. I like the way you talk about that. Actually, it's interesting that um, I was asked to go on this uh, this like video podcast uh, to talk about the power of video and stuff. And anyway, the the guy, to be fair to him, you know, know knows nothing about safety. He's not a safety. He's a video professional. Um, and it was interesting that he said on there when he was question, he threw a couple of questions at me. And one of his questions were around, he used the word like a new and innovative way of looking at safety. Uh, and I said, well, I don't, I don't yeah. think it is a new and innovative way, like the way I look at safety. And I said to him, um, and I said to him, I, and he said, oh, well, well, what is it then? And I said, well, I think it's safety and safety was always intended to be. Um, I think if you, if I was to, I've, I've only got experience with UK legislation, so I can only talk for that. But I mean, if you look at the basis of UK legislation and the Health and Safety at Work Act, I, I think it's perfect, really. I mean, if we look at phrases like, you know, manage the risk as far as reasonable and practicable, that, that never, ever yeah. states in yeah. there, you know, produce a gold standard, eliminate all the risks. It just says go as far as is reasonable for your business and it's practical for your business. Yeah. So I, I do wholeheartedly agree yeah. with what you're saying. And it's really nice to hear that, uh, you know, I think, I think we did. I think we lost our way at some point and, and we started focusing yeah. on all the, the little nitty gritty bits of safety and how can we stop all of these tiny little incidents and near misses. And, and we, we lost focus on these, the kind of big fatal potential incidents yeah and, and you, know, you, you really got to think about wh when did this shift in safety start um and we, we have to go back to, to lord Rowans uh in, in the uk with the the Rowans re uh, report which said we've become um too prescriptive and and bureaucratized in safety now we're, we're back into the 70s now uh, where safety was written in the factories and shop shops act uh, and mm. uh, and what Robin says, what we need to do is get the people uh, together. He came up with the, the you know, trying to get the employer, the worker and the, and the union together to actually work out what's the best way and the safest way to get work through collaboration. Um, that was the revolution. And the legislation that we've got today is a derivative um, of that fact, which is simply a framework. It's not prescriptive. And what we've done as safety professionals is then tried to overlay this complexity and, and prescription upon it when that was not the intention. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. I remember going on my first safety qualification. I remember the tutor saying to me, safety is grey and your job is to make it black and white. 
and I was like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> like back then, obviously, no. I was like, I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, okay, I get that. But now I look back on it and I'm like, no, no, it's not. It's not at all. No, the, I think the, the the issue we're facing is we've put the safety um, uh, experts at the centre of controlling how work is done, mm. rather than as being inquirers and facilitators uh, and coaches um, to bring together the knowledge and the expertise and the problem solving capability. Uh, we've sort of, sort of arrived at a position of putting safety practitioners in organisations as the arbiters as what is the correct or incorrect way to do um, any given task. And they're a long way from really having the ability to have that expertise. But what mm. they have got is great insights, is, is to understand um, how to bring ideas together and actually how to achieve a resilient outcome by bringing those ideas together and that's that's what safety differently is is focusing on yeah I, lo- I love the way you describe that as well that's interesting you're using a lot of words that i like to use like facilitators um you know when people say what is a safety professional i use two phrases i say we're facilitators of conversations which to me looks like that's getting right. getting the right people in the room so saying oh i want a, i want a machine operator i want a team leader and i want a safety rep i want this whatever whatever yeah. in a room and saying Let's talk about this and we, and we just facilitate that that kind of hopefully emergent conversation and the next one is i like to think that yeah. sometimes we we have to be professional professional devil's advocate in a way just just uh, just yeah. for sake of, of trying to push us that little bit further and say okay but what if this happens you know or you know well coronavirus is looking like something that will that will that will tear china apart but it will never come over to england well what if it did yeah. Are we are we ready for that? Yeah, have we got right. capacity yeah. for that? Um, yeah. That's how I like to look at it. I love the words you're using, Kelvin. Yeah, it's um, and a part of being facilitators, what we're really interested in equipping safety professionals with is, is the is the power to ask good questions, the the, the mm. ability to understand how to use Socratic questioning, um, how to use appreciative inquiry, how to use those tools to get people to share with you unexpected insights um, about work. And um, so that's what you know, we really feel the key is. It's about having a framework where you can actually get people to take you and give you insights that you'll never see by observation. Um, I often think it's interesting, um, James, if you ask safety professionals about you know, when they go out to do you know, um, safe work observations or do leadership walks or any of those things, but when you go to the uh, any given site, there seems to be very little work that's going on. I don't I don't know if you've ever noticed this, mm. James. Is that mm. whenever you turn up as a safety professional, things seem to be not very busy, um, <laughs> and uh, um, and you sort of wonder, well, you know, um, it must just be a quiet phase or something. It's it's actually not. It's a response to uh, our presence uh, being there. Is people actually stop doing work and do or do the minimal amount of work because they don't want to be judged or, or found wrong um, or, or have some, you know, um, uh, criticism um, about um, the way that they're doing, doing the task, etc. As opposed to if we were arriving uh, into these work environments as curious and trying to understand, you know, what are the challenges and what's interesting and what's difficult about their job and without pl- placing judgment upon them, I think you'd find sites were very busy when we turned up. Um, uh, to have the, those interactions. So uh, 
So I think there's the, we can actually see the, the result of how we impact organisations by merely what happens around us. Definitely. It's, it's either work kind of slows or stops, or there's just mad rush to chuck a load of unnecessary PPE on. Uh, that's what I find sometimes is the other yeah. one. Or oh, the safety guys yeah. coming quick, chuck a hard yeah, hat on. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, there'll be a leadership walk organised and, you know, you'll have the, the days before they'll be madly out there, you know, uh, tidying and painting everything to make it all look neat, neat and, and proper for, for when the leader arrives. You know, <laughs> the, the, the leadership walk has been defeated, you know, right at that point. Exactly. Yeah. I've always found that ironic, you know, whether it's a leader or like a, an auditor or something. I remember when I started in manufacturing and we had, um, we had all the kind of accreditations, your ISOs and all that. Whenever the auditor was coming, yeah. like two weeks before we were all like deep cleaning machines and checking paperwork. And it's like, if we have to do this every yeah. time an auditor comes, isn't there something wrong with the system yeah. somewhere? Well, the auditor's never going to see what, what's going, go, going on. Um, I could probably just um, you know, take the liberty to share a couple of stories, if, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, go on. We, we did one exercise with our construction company uh, looking at induction. And um, so uh, this was a, a construction company that was doing roadworks uh, over a very wide area, completely dependent upon um, uh, subcontracting. Uh, to do the work and so they'd set up you know an induction program which is a three-hour online training session that every person from those subcontractors had to complete and showed um, documentation that they'd completed uh, to be able to enter the site on any given day um, and so when you looked at the system um, it was a hundred percent compliance if you audited the system every person was uh, inducted that attended uh, the sites and when we arrived out on the sites, and we're, we're, look, we're very much in a curious mode, you know, how did things go? The, the first thing that we observed is about 60% of the workforce didn't speak English or didn't write English. It was, they were second language English. And the induction was only online in English. And mm. we thought, well, that's curious. You know? <laughs> so, so how are these people managing to do this really terrible three-hour online induction? And we started to talk to the guys about their day and they said, oh, how do you cope with this ridiculous induction? And they said, oh, we've got, got the induction guy. And they said, oh yeah, well, what's induction guy? Well, they've got this little shed uh, on the site and they had six computers set up on the site. And the induction guy would be given the list of names that um, for who was going to be uh, you know, doing jobs that day that needed to have induction done. He would set up the six computers and diligently work through the six computers completing <laughs> the induction and handing out the cards to the guys. <laughs> That's amazing. We thought, is, yeah, and, it's, and we said, is this an aberration? You know, and we went to the other subcontracts that are doing that. And then we went to the principal contractor and said, how do you do with this induction thing? He said, oh, look, it's a real pain in the ass, but we've got this um, uh, answer set. And we just give the set of answers to the, our people who need <laughs> to go out in the field and they just tick it off and, and, and run it through. And so we thought, so this is a classic example of how, where safety is going wrong because we come in with this audit mentality. Now, from the board perspective, their intention was good. What mm. they want to do is to pass knowledge on to people going onto the site. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it, it then becomes the method of delivery that becomes a problem. So to satisfy all of that, they put this process in place, they put all this checking in place, and the board gets a report back with its, as part of its monthly reporting, showing the compliance with that requirement. 
And the board is sitting there thinking, yes, we've achieved our objective. We've achieved the objective of making sure everyone's properly informed. And so the reality was, and when the incident comes to happen, that that's not the case at all mm. in the space. And so that's, you know, that's really the difference in this space from, you know, we've got to shift our, our lens as safety professionals to actually move from that, you know, that, that policing and compliance and reporting mentality that and as soon as we sort of put that lens on we'll go out in the field and we'll know oh 60 percent of the people don't speak english no, we need to come at this differently and actually work out how do we actually give the people the, the information they need to know in a way that works and achieves the intended objective from the start so the criticism then not becomes of the non-compliant person in the field it really becomes a challenge to the system saying the system needs to be designed better to achieve its intended outcome. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I would imagine that most safety professionals, if they're any good at their job, have got a story like that. I think we, we do. I, I, one of my favourite stories was, uh, the again, in manufacturing, actually, um, we were an American-owned company, and the American side of the business uh, decided that because of the international um, data on on injuries and accidents was heavily hand injuries, primarily cuts. We have to do an international rollout of cut-proof gloves. To be honest, they were they were okay yes. gloves. There was no consultation. There was no employee engagement. There was no employee involvement. There was nothing like that. Um, you know, whereas I, at least I know that in the HSE guidance and, regu- and and legislation, you know, we we are required to have those conversations. So anyway, we did get. I remember we just got delivered these massive boxes full of gloves, and we rolled them out as we were told to do, and. I remember about a few months later, I went and talked to a gentleman who was coincidentally a safety rep for, for, for that site. Yeah. And he'd cut the fingers tips off of the gloves. So that, which I thought was ironic in yeah. itself because they're cut proof gloves, but yet he'd managed to cut the, uh, the fingertips off them. And, um, and the, the kind of team leader and the, and the management of the site went absolutely nuts, wanted to discipline him because he's a safety rep. He should be leading by example. We need to, we need to set an example yeah. of him, blah, blah, blah. And I'd never come across this safety two stuff or hop or anything like that at this point. But I remember being curious as to why he did it. And I'm thinking like, well, if he's doing it, why is everyone else, is, short, is everyone else not doing it or are they doing it? So I asked around, blah, 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 mm. and, and tried not to reference the incident, just like how, how are the gloves, you know, how are you finding the gloves? And, and I knew a couple of really honest operators that would just tell me straight, you know, these gloves are shit, James, or something like that. So I went over to them and just said, how are you finding the gloves? And they literally just said they're terrible. Um, and I said, Why? And so they don't work on the touch screens on the machines, James, and all the little knobs and the dials and stuff. We, we can't, we, we don't have the dexterity. But the most annoying thing is we have to take them off whenever we use the touch screens. And I was like, right, which is why he cut his fingers off. The problem was not the person. The problem was the system, was the gloves that we'd implemented. Because so we the expert did... had come in without... Exactly. Yeah, the expert had come in without talking to the people that do the work. Exactly. Who are the experts? Who, who would? Example. Exactly. And they yeah. would have turned around and said, 
yeah, but they needs to work on these touchscreens. Because once we had that conversation yeah. with them, we just went and got cut-proof gloves with the touch with the uh, the bit on the end of it that allows them to be used on a touchscreen. Boom, sorted. Easy peasy. And you know, you you remind me because I've had a similar issue with um, cut-proof gloves on mining sites with with uh, the people who prepare the food and. Um, uh, so it was mandated that they had to put the cut, you know, cut-resistant glove, gloves in, which um, chefs um, find particularly problematic um, for a whole range of reasons. Um, but they so they put the gloves in place, and all of a sudden, the food poisoning incidents suddenly massively increased. And oh, that was because when they actually observed what was was happening, the the um, the, the food preparation staff were using the gloves. They could no longer feel the food. So, for example, if you're working with raw chicken and you're preparing that, and then you go to walk, work with the salad material, for example, your natural inclination is to wash your hands between the two because you actually have, have felt the difference in the two materials. They were no longer washing their hands in between because they had the gloves on. They couldn't tell that they they they'd sort of forgotten they just touched raw chicken chicken and then were going to work, work with the um, uh, with the the food that wasn't going to, going to be cooked and they introduced um, a food poisoning hazard into the business and again because there was no consultation with the people doing the work about the problem that they're trying to solve. Yeah, definitely. I actually used to be a chef before I started in safety and I could tell you if anyone tried to tell me to put cut proof gloves on it would have been an absolute nightmare. We, we, you know, you use your fingers yeah. for guides to stop you cutting yourself, ironically. Yeah. Like the, the edge of, that's how when people do that really sharp cutting, they're using the edge of their, their kind of knuckle, essentially, to guide the knife. So you wouldn't but be able to do right. that with gloves. It's a technique and it's about knife technique. That's a crutch. So you go back and have that conversation. It's about knife technique. And as yeah. you know, a chef will tell you, what you need is really high quality sharp knives mm-hmm. um, are your best um, way to improve knife safety uh, mm-hmm. in, in your kitchen. Uh, it's not the cut through gloves, it's actually the equipment and, and understanding that um, uh, that technique is the way that you actually achieve the objective. So again, it, it is about having that involvement with the people who do the work to understand the nature of the solution that needs to be provided. Mm. So just to kind of summarize all of that then, well, excuse me. We, one of the key things we seem to be missing here consistently, and and we and we, that we're bringing up is that employee engagement. So that's one thing that we we feel that we're we're missing from that that kind of. It, let's let's just say you know bad a bad way of managing safety. What are there some other key kind of things that that we think that we're missing? That, yeah. That, so go on. Yeah, there, there is. So you know, like I said, you know, we're working. We sort of came out of with safety differently with the three foundation principles about people being a solution to harness, focusing on the presence of positives rather than the absence of negatives, uh, and about having um, ethical engagement rather than bureaucratic accountability. They're, they're the three, three foundation stones. So mm. we then said, well, how does that transaction into practice? And over working with many different organisations, we've come up with these six key tactics that um, you apply to your safety management process. And, and the first one, w- when you're looking at the work that's been done, make sure you're focusing on what matters. So this is a bit about, you know, tacking into to critical risk and our safety systems have become overburdened with, with nonsense, in essence, and, and minor bureaucracy. So the thing is, if it's not focusing on what matters, get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And the second, the second thing is about 
having a process where you put freedom within a framework. So that's, uh, that's a process of understanding. You want people to be able to make decisions within certain boundaries, given that they have a few and simple rules to, um, to work upon. Um, and then they've got good decision support to help them to actually understand the decisions that they need to make in real time to control the circumstances working. So freedom within a framework is a really um, key process. Uh, the third principle is, or oh, the third tactic is, let's let's learn for success, right? So um, the whole idea is let's understand how work is done, and when we go to actually understand that work, let's understand how we actually move and make work continually successful. So very much the whole Nagel principle. If you keep um, if you keep things uh, working and succeeding, you don't need to worry about work things failing right, in essence. Mm. Um, the fourth principle is you need to build engagement and trust. So you need to allow people to tell you stuff that you don't want to hear, and that's got to be welcomed. Um, mm. You've got to be able to hear the bad news and respond and encourage in it rather than you know, discipline it uh, when you happen. But you, people want to share stuff with you, but they don't, they don't want, to, want to be castigated when they, they, they share the stuff that people don't really want to know. Um, fifth one is about having collaborative partnerships. So that's very much... Um, that doesn't matter. It's between teams. It's between contractors, like between principal contractors and subcontractors, working with regulators. All those processes move out of the master-servant relationship and actually move into a process where you're trying to support each other to achieve your common goals. So have those collaborative partnerships. And lastly, just constantly integrate, improve, and simplify um, the way that the system operates. You know, so. Don't have, you know, three processes on procurement, you know, one that sits in safety, one that sits in purchasing, and one sits within the finance team. Uh, don't have th different ways of doing discipline, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and regulation. Don't have um, one method of, you know, how you actually do the work method from a production point of view and another one on how you do it from a safety point of view. Simplify the stuff and actually give people one source of truth in that process. So that, that's the practical approach when we say, if you take these ideas, if you use these as a lens, and you and, and we, we talk, talk about them as using them as calibration tools. So anything that you're doing in the safety system is come back and calibrate it against those six tactics. How does that fit into the six, six, six tactics? Um, does it make sense? Mm. I like that. And I, I think all of those are quite good. I think it's interesting when you, you look at like, say a risk assessment is a good example. The safety team have a risk assessment. Yeah. You say risk assessment, you think, yeah, risk matrices and uh, you know, severity, yeah. likelihood numbers, and all that. But yet, the finance team will have their own version of risk assessing, guaranteed, or the investment team or whoever. Yeah. You know, when they're discussing, yeah. how, uh, should we should we invest in this? Should we invest in that? They will have some form of of assessing that risk. Um, a, is there any yeah. way? Is there any way those two worlds come together? I've never done it myself, but I think it'd be an I, interesting exercise. Yeah, no, we've done that. Absolutely, we we actually think you only should have one for risk framework. Now you have different dimensions to that. So in terms, you will change, you know, the consequences and, and those sorts of things uh, within that system. You turn channels, but you should, and that's what companies like BHP do. They have one risk framework that works across the entire organisation in terms of in whether it's in investment and finance and those, or whether it's in operations or whether it's in, you know, safety, it's in a common framework um, mm. in that, that process. So I would think that's absolutely a goal. Now, 
you, it will branch out into, you know, um, different inputs and outputs as you go, but there should be a common risk language and framework that the organization, because what you got to remember is it's got to come back to the board ultimately. And the board shouldn't be confused and saying, Oh, which risk framework is this? And why is yeah. this uh, particular consequence level different to that one? And how does this one fit that one? You know, they've got no chance, you know? So the idea is thinking about, you know, tailoring to fit um, the organization. Um, I, I like, I like yeah. the way you, you talk about that with risk that using the same risk language I think that that's nice I like the way you, you you say that because I think that that's that works all the way through the business so you could now get the finance director or a finance business partner or whatever you want to call them on the shop floor talking to the machine operator and when they're using phrases around risk assessing talking from their perspective of a financial risk the operative of the machine who's probably more safety risk based um yeah. will understand what they're talking about because they're using the same language i think that's really key well yeah it's really and really it's one of the other things we really concentrate in with safety differently is connecting these two concepts of successful and safe work as being an integrated uh concept so that what we're saying in that context is, and it's interesting what you're putting up there saying, you know, coming from an operational um, point of view, is that the whole point of work is to produce this work outcome. So the organisation wants that work to be done successfully, right? So it might be about the cost and the productivity and the amount of labour that's used and the resources and all those things. Safety has to be completely partnered with that process, is that, it, its mutual goal should be able to achieve the most effective and efficient and successful outcome. And that successful outcome immediately implies that you've got the, the maximum amount of safety capacity as part of that process. And inherently we find once you put those two concepts um, together, that you get these amazing um, results. I, 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 probably to give this um, a little bit of context, I can share one example. Um, of it working in practice where um, uh, Qantas um, uh, went through a process of having to change the A380 engines um, across the fleet because of a problem with the Rolls-Royce engine that they had. And um, in changing an A380 engine, they basically uh, had to put the aircraft into a hangar um, and uh, um, they uh, have an engine rolled in on, on a cradle, uh, which then uh, goes in and you have the uh, technicians who basically work between the aircraft and the cradle to attach the engine in. Now, this, this job was, uh, took, was taking about three days to complete to do an engine change. And so Qantas went in and, and actually involved their, their engine technicians in saying, okay, um, what makes this work difficult for you? What, 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 what's the hardest thing that you have to deal with? And they said, it's the tools. And they said, well, what about the tools is the issue. And as, and as you know, the, these engines have you know, very um, uh, uh, specific tools and some of them are quite large and you know, got a lot of weight involved uh, in them. Um, they said they're very tightly controlled, they're very expensive. And um, so every time we need a tool, we have to actually exit down from uh, the aircraft, go to the tool store, sign the tool out, bring it back to the engine, use the tool for that task, complete it, when we've done that, return it back to um, the tool shop, get the next tool, bring it back and rinse and repeat, do that thing. And they said, what would be, what would be a lot, lot better is if we could have all the tools that we need 
located in the cradle around the engine so that we just move from point to point around the engine and do the tasks that we do and just get away from all the signing in and signing out, all the administrative stuff. And there's, so Quanta said, okay, let's um, give that a go. And they spent, you know, a couple of hundred thousand on modifying a cradle, putting all, all the tools in place. The engine change took between eight and 10 hours to complete instead of three days in that process. Wow. Now, wow. the interesting thing about the, this process, and as a result, Qantas changed that whole process. It actually saved them multiple millions of dollars in the engine changeover um, process. The question was, was that a productivity initiative or was it a safety initiative? Mm. When you look at this, it was clearly a productivity gain in that process. Yeah. But the safety gains were huge. They no longer had to climb in and out of the gantry, carrying these heavy and awkward tools backwards and forwards across the hangar floors into this space. And their safety performance significantly improved as a result. So the question wasn't asked as a safety question. It was asked is, what is making the job difficult for you to do? And what would you do to do it differently? And they came up with the answer. You know, mm. so, so that's, you know, in terms of the, these issues, when you think about the language of operations and language of safety, there should be the language of work that we're talking about is how do we do work well? Yeah, that's a really good example. That's a really good example. I, I was just sitting and thinking of loads of kind of other examples, but I want, I want to kind of get into, into like how, how we kind of implement this stuff. I think one of the things that people suffer with the most, um, Kelvin, around this stuff is, is where do we start? And, and I'd be interested in, in kind of your, your, your pointers on that. When we're looking at our, our systems yeah. and all, all of these paperwork and checklists we've got in, and then you, let's say you, you read all the Eric Honagel books, Todd Conklin books, Sydney Detta books, you're listening to all the podcasts, and you're like, I really understand this. Now what do I do? I think that's one of the biggest challenges. <laughs> uh, look, what, what we've learned is that there's no one solution fits all. Mm. Um, for any organization you've got to work with the culture and the practice of the organization and some organizations want to do a wholesale change they'll start from the board and they say we're going to adopt these principles and we're going to roll everything out you know that this is the big bang rolls royce show um, you know and, and so if that works for an organization you can do that but but inherently the, the thing that we see works the most is the micro experiment model where you come in and you say Where's something difficult or interesting that we'd like? So don't fix the whole safety management system and declutter everything. Take one thing with it, right? And go in and, and actually apply these ideas, is go and talk to people, reshape it, test it, um, and then see how that works. And then if that works, it becomes driven by operations or start to drive it. We saw, okay, we saw this micro experiment. We did this there. Why can't we do it on the next thing? and you start to actually have it lead its own process. So micro-experimentation, micro I think, it is a really great way. Look, a simple example of that, you know, you know one, of, one of the companies we've worked with um, wanted to um, change the pre-start meetings, uh, you know, because they had this whole process of, of you have your, your risk assessment and you have to go and do the checklist and tick it all off and, uh, and do all that process. And they said, well, maybe we can do this differently. And they said, let's do a micro experiment. So what they did was they got rid of all their paperwork uh, and everything. Um, and uh, all the, this particular teams working in the field, they all had iPads. And I said, why don't we just do a um, starter day? 
working on the front of the vehicle, we get everybody around, we put the iPad down on the bonnet of the vehicle and we turn it on and we record and we have a conversation about the job that's been done and what's going to happen, who's going to, what, what are the issues that we need to address and we move away from that formal process into an informal process um, and there's no paperwork anymore. The record is the recording of that process. Um, so it's geo-stamped, it's date-stamped, it's time-stamped, it's voice-interacted uh, because you know you've got you know, recognition. It's not, some, not, it's not signatures on a page that you've got no idea where they happen. So from a, a governance point of view, it's a really high level. And what they found was they got much better pre-starts in that mode because what was happening before, they'd have all the pre-start paperwork, they'd give it to the apprentice, he'd go and sit in the cab of the vehicle, he'd, he'd go through, fill it all out, sign, sign, it'd all be signed off, nobody actually engaged in that. And this got back to the process of this really worked. And this became, and that became a micro experiment and said, oh, that, that really worked well. What's the next thing that we can do? Let's have a look at the next task and go and try that. So I think micro experimentation is, is a really excellent way, certainly one of the ways that DECA uh, recommends. But it, some, some things will work, some things won't work. Some things you'll need and you'll, you'll find that the existing method is the, the better method and you'll stick with it. So. It, it's, I think it's like, you know, how do you eat an elephant in bite-sized chunks? So I think in terms of doing this, don't try and do too much. That, that's the danger. If you try and do too much, you'll end up failing because you can't give the attention that you need, you know, across the size of the, the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm. What, how, how do you kind of approach it? Say, say for example, you know, you're, you're a safety professional or, or anyone within the business and you're thinking, I want to I wanna kind of do this, go with that micro experiment way or, or just kind of bring this into my business. But you're going into that boardroom and the language that everyone's communicating in when they're talking around safety and, and the examples that people are giving are so kind of... Yeah compliance based and human error based and you know all, all, all the opposites of what you're trying to and you're just sitting there and you're just like this is a huge challenge is that micro experiment way is that is that also maybe going to tick that box because you're showing hey look i'm just going to take this tiny chunk of the business and show you that this works yeah, so it's um, you have to do a couple of things. At the board level, there's real work that has to be done. We normally, in our approach, we do an executive challenge um, with the board. So before trying to enter and change things, we generally run like a two-hour workshop where we go in and really challenge those assumptions about work. And there's a whole lot of, you know, there's a whole lot of evidence and things that we do to do to do that in that process. And that just comes you know, from the literature and studies and all those sorts of things. So we've got a pre-packaged approach to deal with the board. But in that session, the one thing that we always take in is an example, you know, from their own organisation. So we'll go out into the field and we'll find some real work that's been done and we'll go in and, uh, and, and document that, you know, I can, uh, just to give you a simple example of that, we were working with... Um, uh, one organisation um, uh, in the rails uh, sector and they were doing construction there and we, we were simply doing this discovery exercise. We met with this contractor um, who just completed the task working overnight and uh, met with the supervisor and, and just started walking around, around the site and uh, the supervisor was just telling us about the job they'd done on this big concrete pour um, that they'd done over the night before. And uh, as we... Um, 
walked around, he was uh, sort of expressing increasing levels of frustration, you know, about all the difficulties he was facing, um, wasn't getting the support that he needed, you know, and a range of other things. And that was because we were having a conversation, we weren't having an audit of, of mm. that process. We were just sharing about, you know, how work was done. And we sort of came to, uh, we're getting towards the end of our, our visit around the site and we noticed something odd about the form work um, that was there. And we, we said, oh, well, this is interesting. And the supervisor immediately said, oh, this is uh, what happened last night. And he started a reenactment of a complete failure of the form work where the form work actually broke and breached and tons of concrete were pouring out. Uh, and him and his team, um, uh, then manually tried to hold the formwork in, stem the flow, patch it all up, repair the job, redo it all, and uh, did all that. And by the morning, they'd repaired it, had it all cleaned up, all was good. And they didn't feel there was a need to tell anyone about that because nobody got hurt in the in the process. And so, the and the reason that he was sharing that that with us was there was a whole lot of issues about how that job had been set up that he felt they hadn't been given the right equipment, the right tools, the right people, all those sorts of things. And this had gone wrong. But he certainly didn't feel like um, uh, he wanted to go through an incident investigation process and all those things. So that, in terms of doing that discovery, we, we took that example back into the boardroom and saying, this is what your existing system is doing. There's actually stuff happening out there which is really significant, but you're not being told about it because it's actually conditioning people to silence. What you need to do is you need to change and you need to be hearing is what people are experiencing, where they're having issues and actually how to help them resolve them before you're actually looking at a serious injury investigation, you know, that's occurring. Because that event could have been a serious injury. It just didn't happen to be. But the fact was they were never going to find out anything about that event that occurred. So, so, in, so I suppose the nature of this story is that one of the tools we think is really important is before you go into the board, go in and actually find some real-world stories about how things are actually transactioning in their organisations that they will be surprised by. And without fault, we know every time we've gone into any business, any location, we can find these events within a couple of hours. They're happening all the time. Um, it's just... Uh, it's just a case of being able to uh, bring that story to life and share it and give the board an insight of the things that they don't really see. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that it's all this, all this paperwork and compliance based approach, it, it creates a full sense of security in a way, doesn't it? Because like you were saying in that example, yeah. the board had no idea that this is reality because all the rag charts and, and paperwork and spreadsheets, et cetera, say everything's a okay. Yeah, they're designed, they're self-fulfilling prophecies, you know. Mm. Everyone is actively working to produce the desired result, you know. And, and look, and I'll, I'll be a little bit harsh in that, you know, and people get creative in producing that, that result, you know. Mm. I can't believe the effort that goes into classification around incidents, you know. The, you'll, you'll see, you know, for very minor incidents, you'll have people flying, you know, um, um, you know, large distances to come to, to, to meetings to work out, um, how can this not be a lost time incident, you know, or how can this not be a medical treatment uh, event? Oh, the fact is, oh, they went to the wrong doctor. Oh, it's not, no longer a medical treatment event, you know. So, mm, so yeah. that's the wrong sort of effort 
you know, that we need to be in place. And I know Todd talks a lot about that, these sorts of things, um, but um, we've, we've built a system that's about the system and not about the people that we're, we're trying to engage with. Yeah, I, I would agree. I've had those exact, exact arguments, you know, arguing whether something's a riddle or not, because, oh, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's it, I don't think it, I think it falls into this line because of this one word. This one word means that it's not a riddle. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, we're missing the trick here. Somebody has hurt themselves. Like, soon, to, I reckon that's a great flag, James. As soon as you're having that discussion, you know that you're having the wrong discussion. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And and what are the kind of what are the kind of challenges that you that you get back from from say like clients and stuff when see so you're going in and and you're you, you're talking about this kind of let this different lens to look through. Are, there, are you getting challenges back? Like, yeah. well, yeah, but we still need to we still need to do this stuff to be compliant with the local regulator or or something like that. What are the kind of the fears from from potential oh, yeah. new new <laughs> that's um that's really common. So. Yeah, so, so nothing in safety two is about not meeting your, your regulatory obligations. Right? So one of the most interesting thing about the regulatory compliance um, that, that you deal with, and if you look at how the compliance process operate, the actual requirements of the legislation, uh, um, and you indicated at the start of this conversation, is they've actually got a fair degree of freedom um, yeah. uh, within them. What happens then is the safety professionals we then go and put in a safety management system and we put lots of processes and everything around it. So what then happens from a regulator's point of view is they then test you to the system that you've created. Yeah. And the more complexity and the more bureaucracy and the more everything else, you're actually being held accountable to you've actually created. Yeah. And it's not the regulator that's obliging you to create that. It's that's what you're doing to yourself, you know. And so, so that's the great misunderstanding from safety professionals is that the regulator's requiring this. And I said, no, the regulator's only requiring this because you've designed your system to do this. The regular, when you go and talk to the regulators and you go, can we do it this way? They'll say, of course you can. All right. yeah. it's, it's so, so, that, so none of the safety differently is about not meeting your obligations. It's not about, you know, not under your risk and your hazards and your controls. It's about ensuring that you've actually got successful hazard control in place and that they're resilient controls that are in place and that they actually work. So, so mm. one of the things that we, we talk a lot about, that the change in safety differently is about the democratisation of safety. And so the example I would use, so we, we come up with lots of hazards and lots, lots of controls. Whoever talks to the people who use those controls to find out whether they're any good. Mm. And in, in the way that we look at this approach is that what you should have coming back constantly in your system, if you put controls in place, and, and we, we actually look at controls in, in two types, one are your must-dos and one is your, your calls, right? So the must-dos will be driven by, you know, there'll be sort of regulatory requirements or certain things that need to be in place, but, um, or they might be driven by the organisation. But do you take any feedback from the people about, how that control works. Is it any good? Does it create any unintended consequences that need to be dealt with? Um, do, do the controls create other problems which are actually more problematic than the control themselves? Mm. And with the your calls, you know, they're, they're more about the controls that you've got choices to put in place. And that allows people to, to say, 
in this condition, this control worked really well. In this, in this, in this other condition, it didn't work really well. So the whole idea becomes about controls being relative to their context in that space. But as a safety system, the whole idea of democratization is make sure you're getting this information and feedback and don't be designing controls from the expert down. Let the expert actually get good information and actually redesign the system that's adaptive to the people who are doing the work in that space. Mm. So in, in this whole process, nothing about safety differently is not about meeting your, your regulatory obligations. Um, what it is, is about, it's about engagement, it's about um, democratization and actually getting much better inputs to get much better outputs in that mm. process. And it's an area that a lot of people, you know, um, don't want to do because this takes a lot more work to actually do this than to actually just go and take something off the shelf of, but here, here's the standard, here's what somebody else is doing, you know, let's just replicate this in and put this model in place and we just want people to comply with it, but not take mm. any feedback about it. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And that's kind of exactly what all these accreditations are, aren't they? They're just kind of off the shelf standard, the same, the same standard for the same business. It's like how, how can a construction yeah. business have, have exactly the same management standards as a manufacturing business? It's a completely different environment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I must say, look, I mean, yeah, it is, and it is ridiculous. And, you know, well-designed systems are adaptive. Look, 45,001 is, is a better standard because I think it's more adaptive um, okay. in, in its concept, you know. So okay. I think it, it, it has been, it's an improvement on where we were before because it does allow you, I think, to focus on, you know, um, the integration and, and actually the way that uh, what you do fits the business activities. Um, but um, you're right. Yeah, in, in, in terms of a lot of the, the, the standards and processes we, we apply, you know, you, you, need, you need to actually um, have a system that actually fits the work. That, that's really the, the key to this process. Mm. That's interesting what you said about 45501 because I've heard a lot of good stuff about that, if I'm honest, but I've never worked with 45. I worked with the, um, I always forget the number, 18. Was it 18,000? 1801, yeah. And 1801, you know, look, if you look at 1801 and 13,001 and, and 9001, they're all the same standard written, you know, they substituted the word safety, yeah. quality and environment, I think, to, yeah. to some, some degree. Um, uh, but I think 45,001 was a real attempt to say, okay, let, let's, let's actually step up, up and out and, uh, and think about, um, you know, how do we move into uh, adaptive, um, appropriate um, systems for the type of work that's been done. Hmm. That's interesting. So when, when you kind of, when, what is, what does this actually like physically look like? Like, for example, I think some people when they, maybe when they read Sydney's work, say like the safety anarchist, for example, or something like that. And, and people, yeah. I think when people say, Oh yeah, we're a safety two business. So somebody from the safety one world, and I'm just using these labels to simplify the conversation because yeah. it's just easier. But, um, you know, I think some people think that, well, if you're a safety two business, it means you've got no paperwork, no records, no, you know, if, if you, if something no. did go wrong and you ended up in court, you'd have no way to prove you don't, you don't record incidents and accidents and stuff like that. Like does, 
is that what it looks like? What does this stuff really physically look like? No. You've still got risk assessments. No, you still investigate accidents and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah. Look, again, the, the you know, uh, and Sydney doesn't say that. I know, look, uh, Sydney likes to um, uh, stir the pot with his uh, ideas and language, but yeah. Sydney's also, you know, a pilot. You know, he's a 737 pilot. Um, and completely supports the idea of some of the systemization that sits within aircraft, the types of how they use checklists, for example, and all those things, you know, is, you know, um, is completely consistent with, with, with his thinking. What a safety two system is, is, is it should be something that's living and breathing and dynamic and constantly under challenge, you know? So, like again, this goes goes back to our six tactics. You know, he's constantly challenging the system under the, those tactics. Um, the flexibility, the sort of freedom within a framework, is saying not to have not have rules, but to have rules that are in place that actually are simple and effective and work, and take feedback. And if those rules need to be adjusted based on the democratization concepts, you know, the the, the controls and things, is they should be constantly adapting and feeding, and also they should be. Um, a safety two system will be a one size fits all. So it will, it will understand that, you know, doing, you know, um, uh, work at height or you know, working in confined space in completely different contexts. It might be in temperature or environment or uh, in, in the application is you need to respond completely different in that space. And the system should have the ability to adapt, to expand and contract to meet that, those requirements. So, if you, if I'm saying what the what a safety two system looks like, it's dynamic and changes all all the time, and also it's immediately accessible and easy easy to access. So, um, I'll, I'll give you one example. Langar Rockers, you know, being a safety two organisation for um, uh, a safety different organisation for a long period of time, one of the first initiatives that Langar Rock uh, did for its contractors is it put its safety management system into the public domain. So it's on a public website that anybody can access at any, any point in time. And being the, the principle that was that um, if you need information about how to do work, there shouldn't be any barriers. You shouldn't have to get through IT departments and, and everything else. There's nothing particular thing. It's about having access to the... And on their site, the other thing that they put in um, uh, on, on their system was the ability to put feedback. So any contractor, any person can go on and saying, oh, here's the problems with this procedure. And it actually goes onto that website. It goes into the public domain. Anyone can see that, that feedback um, and it becomes a democratized process. Wow. So to me, that's one of the great examples. That's what a safety two system looks like. It looks wow. like it's accessible, available, adaptive, um, and it's constantly learning. Um, if you have a safety management system that it's easier to change a verse in the Bible than it is to change a procedure in the safety management system, <laughs> that's a safety one system that's gone wrong. <laughs> that's a great example. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've seen I've seen examples um, within our, our clients of one procedure like that they were trying to change that had been worked on. For five years, they've been going through processes to try and make the change to one procedure in the system. Five now, years. that's a system that's gone wrong in the process. Wow. Wow. Five years. That is crazy. So, so just quickly. Five, yeah, five I mean, years. And... Go on. Go on. 
No, no, go on. Yeah, I'll just, uh, I, won't, I, I won't go into depth on that one, but uh, there's many examples <laughs> of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just Look, the, the other interesting thing about, I, I will touch on one thing about safety management systems, if you want yeah, to know how well they're working. Yeah. Um, simply go to your IT people and run a report on um, which, which um, documents or pages have been accessed in the safety management system. Mm. Just run the report out and see the date and time that the, the last one was accessed and see if it, the only time it was accessed was actually to do a procedure refresh or update. Um, if, uh, if that's the case, you've got a safety management system that's there for its own purpose and it's not working. I'm just writing that down because that's, uh, that's quite a good tip, I think. I like that. Mm, I like that. So just on that Langer Rook one, that, that's interesting. Like, so is that just open to Joe Public? So anybody, if you, even if you're not working yes, for the is. business? So, yeah. for example, I could go on there, have a that's full right. look at their system and say, yeah. just here's a bit of feedback from me. Yep. Yeah. That, 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 that's exactly, exactly right. Um, fascinating. Got that I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy. I'll send you a link to it after our discussion. Um, and Lango Rocco have made it quite, you know, they talk about it and share this all the time. So there won't be any problem with um, sharing that, but I think it, it's, it's a great principle. And the question always becomes, and it's, it's interesting because you look at a lot of the problems we have in safety, it does sit around contracting. Um, and, uh, as soon as you go to the contractors and ask them, you know, how they use the safety management system, they said, oh, well, we can't, you know, we can't get through the firewall, we can't get passwords, we've got this person, you know, got that person, you know. Um, so there might be this most perfect safety management system that the organisation's built, but unless it's accessible, usable and relevant, it's pointless, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so Langer Rock, I thought, have, have, have done that really well. That's fascinating. And I think a lot of people would look at that like a negative. I think a lot of people would see that as a threat to the business. But I think if you were to flip that and look at it from a positive point of view, look at all the kind of diverse advice that you could get. Someone that you would never come across in your life. Someone from, yeah. from America, from England, from, from India, from China, anywhere can go and just out of the blue, have a look, spot something and go, oh, have you thought about this? And then you go, no. We've we've never yeah. thought about that. Actually, that's an amazing idea. No. So innovative. Yeah. Um, well, well, the other the, one of the principles I haven't talked about in safety differently is it's built on open source philosophy, right? So, the whole idea about about safety differently is that it's trying to come up with ideas, share them into the public domain, and let other people then develop that and come up with the next idea and share it into the public domain. So putting your safety management system into the public domain is completely consistent with that idea. Safety isn't proprietary. Safety, you know, um, uh, is it, it, the complexity of what we do, which uh, brings in suppliers and all sorts of interactions and other organisations and, you know, all that these things. It's a complex thing and only through um, the idea of open source idea exchange, can we actually adapt in the complex environment that we're currently in? So, so I think that's something else that's poorly practiced in safety is this idea of putting what, you know, what we know and what we've learned into the public domain and not being afraid to do so. There's nothing, you, got, you know, really, when we look at all the safety management, there's nothing proprietary about them. We're all doing photocopying things in one way or another, <laughs> replicating them and things. So, you know, 
I've sort of, I've always sort of had this idea. Maybe we, at some point in time, like you know, the, the health and safety executive actually um, produces an organic, you know, breathing, living, breathing safety management system that any organisation can can utilise as its own. Mm. You know? and, uh, that would that would be revolutionary. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's not let's not talk about the health and safety executive. I think they've got they could do. I think they do a good job considering how much cuts they've had in the uk and uk talking obviously yeah. but um i think i think they, they could do so much more they've got so much more potential but anyway that i would like to touch on before we get into the rabbit hole that is discussing the regulator <laughs> we'll end up in alice in wonderland <laughs> um I'd, I'd like to explore yeah. like when, when, sticking on that tangent of what this stuff actually looks like i'd, I'd like to kind of get your maybe a couple of examples or your experience around like learning teams and, and, and that shift between um, yeah. accident investigation and learning teams, you know, what, what are the key fundamental differences and, and what does it actually look like? Yeah. Yeah. Look that, that, I think that's really interesting. And, and like we we're talking about before where you get changed made learning teams are an engine of change. So I, I did talk a bit about micro experiments, but, and, learning teams and micro experiments actually tend to link together uh, quite well as, as a concept uh, in that pr um, process. Um, now the thing, things about, uh, I think, learning teams from, from our, our perspective uh, is that the first shift is to um, shift out of uh, the idea that um, you're doing learning teams for your incident events. Um, now what, what we would say is that um, you, you certainly can use you know, learning teams for, for incident events. There, there's nothing wrong with that. But it shouldn't be your primary strategy um, of, of trying to learn. Unfortunately, the, the, no matter how well-intentioned um, and structured a learning team uh, event is, as soon as you're into an event where there's been a significant um, uh, you know, uh, injury or, or loss uh, that's occurred, um, people are protective um, and they will participate, uh, but ultimately uh, they'll only share what can be discovered um, in, in that process. And, and you, you just don't get often to the, the uh, interesting insights that, that you need to find. So, there's there's certainly merit into um, to learning you know from those events, but um, it should, just shouldn't be your your primary area of focus. You need to apply it um, in a considered fashion in, in investigating events. Where we've sort of found to be the sweet spot is put your learning team capability into where work is difficult. So um, this is uh, and often. Um, it's about self-selection into this place. So one of the, the first thing, the conditions in setting up the, the learning team process is to, to work with teams where they select the issue that they want to look at. What's, what's actually you know, front of mind, problematic, those sorts of things. If they self-select in rather than have events selected by you know, the, the, the safety team, for example, uh, you've already stepped over one, one of your barriers of engagement. Um, it, they're not having it done to them. They're actually um, coming in and asking uh, for that process uh, to be in place. The second, the, the second part of this process is the success of the learning team is completely dependent upon trust. 
And it is so easy to get this wrong or to break trust uh, in this process. If you break trust, you know, um, in a learning uh, team uh, process, the time that you break the trust is a time that you won't rebuild it, uh, in essence. So if you start to build a learning team process in an organisation and that trust gets, gets broken, um, you, you've lost the benefit. So a lot of effort and thought has to do it. So that trust, um, it, it's interesting where, where it lies. The, the first group that you have to build the trust with is within the direct management team that are looking after that particular area because they're naturally protective of their own work. You know, they, uh, a learning team will find out lots of things that are very uncomfortable um, and you've got to be able to bring the, that management team along in a process where they own that process and what you're trying to do is give them better uh, information, better, better insights to make better decisions, but make sure that they feel very completely in control of that process and they get to choose how they manage that input and output um, process. Then the second level of trust is with the people that you bring into the learning team. So if you bring frontline people into a learning team, um, you've got to be able to instill with them uh, trust that they can share anything in that space and there'll be no retribution uh, yeah. for that context. So in every learning team that we've ever run, there has been really difficult things that people have shared that would normally attract discipline or some sort of reaction uh, to it. Um, but people want to share that stuff uh, uh, with you because they want to find a better way in that process. And if they feel they can share it with you and be part of actually resolving it, um, then you'll actually get to, get to the nub of really what you need to know and the problem that you really need to fix. So that, so that trust is, and that's where the trust equation is really important because if you break that trust with front line, that will spread like wildfire through the organisation. That We had this learning team, we shared this stuff and ended up, you know, um, having really unpleasant consequences as a result of sharing uh, that stuff. So, so that's that. Pro so the combination um, then also in those learnings when we bring them back to the management team is also to understand that learning teams don't produce actions. So when you go in and actually have insights and learnings through, through this process, a whole lot of material will come up. Um, the outputs that um, come through um, a, a learning uh, team process are actually so, sort of um, couched, uh, well, couched in, in, in a way that um, it's about the, the insight that's um, produced and we, we call them an output of conditions rather than output of, you know, um, issues and long compliance. And in the conditions we say, well, here's the conditions that we've discovered, here's the impact of that condition and here's the improvement ideas that the team has come up with. But they're only ideas. They're not actions, you're not compelled to. They're simply Again, this, uh, this is the perspective from the people who are doing the work. So you take that back to the management team and you then allow the management team to say, okay, well, we can see that, you know, we, we, it's going to need a bit of investment. So it's gonna work. And they get to choose. They, they have ownership over what they do. But what they have to do is they have to communicate back to the learning team what they choose and why. So it's very okay to say we're not going to take this on board, but they need to communicate back to the learning team. 
as to uh, why they're not actually going to engage in that particular idea or mm -hmm. process. So this is the loop um, that applies. And if you get this circle of entrust and engagement, you then get a process that actually drives itself. And we've seen this in a number of organisations where you've handed over the safety team become the facilitator. Um, they provide the structure and the framework. They provide uh, the people who actually, you know, host the, the learning teams and they run this process. But they don't, they're not the experts, they're not the judges in that process. They're simply coaching uh, the participants, they're coaching the management team and leading them around the process. And as a result, it takes a life of its own. You don't need to run, you don't need to schedule and say, we're going to look at X and Y and Z. The, the business comes back to safety. You said, oh, now we need to run a learning team on this. Now we need to run a learning team on that. You know, that's the process. As soon as it becomes organic within the organisation, you're on the right track in that, in that space. So that's, that's what I'd say is different about the way that we're thinking about learning teams is, is it's not um, an investigation method. It's not um, a, a structural approach. What it is, is introducing a, um, a capability in the organisation to build safety capacity. Uh, and it's built on that com combined idea of creating successful and safe work as a joined idea. And, uh, and therefore, it becomes the way the organisation sees about creating success and solution and resilience uh, as a natural process, as opposed to a way of satisfying compliance or obligation. So, so really, I mean, the, the, the stuff that keeps coming in my head as I'm talking to people like yourself that are, that are you know, done this, tried and tested this, this kind of approach is it's that the, the changes themselves are actually quite simple. It's, it's really changing yeah. how we think, how we talk, uh, who we engage with, how we, how we look at things, our perception of things. But it, it's, it's the... Yeah. It's the actual doing of that change is, is actually quite challenging and, and long and slow and hard. Yeah. But the physical changes that we do are actually quite simple. They're more, they're more like mindset-based yeah. than they are physical. Is that, is that right? There's a couple of, yeah, a couple of things. As I said, there's no new ideas here. You know, anyone who claims there's new ideas in this space, there's nothing new in this space. Yeah. But it's actually old ideas which have been really successful in bringing them back to the, um, uh, the thought. The other thing we've touched on a couple of times is language. Now, language is so important in this space. Um, and, and in our approach to safety differently, we don't talk about safety. You know, so when we run a learning team, we actually at no point use the word safety or safety related language. In, in the whole learning team experience. What we talk about work, we actually talk in that process, understanding work. Um, and to give you an example, you know, people will come up and say, well, uh, the issue we, 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 we've got is, um, we've only got, you know, three of these uh, particular fitters on, on this process and we've got this time frame. we've only got eight hours to deliver this task and it needs six fitters and it needs 12 hours of, of time to do it. Now, there's not one safety word in all of that. But by implication, you already know there's huge potential safety implications of those things that they haven't got the skills on board, they haven't got the time on board. You can only predict that they're going to do workarounds of every sort, you know, to actually achieve the result. 
So um, as soon as we introduce the language of safety in this process, we immediately limit what they put before you. You know, they'll start to talk about swims, personal protective equipment, risk assessment, none of the things that actually give you an understanding of where the complexity and difficulty of work happens and why work doesn't go to plan in that space. So the issue of language, I think, is really important. It's not about not doing safety, but it's not thinking that safety drives everything. It's understanding that work drives everything. And safety is a derivative of really good work in that space, of really good engagement, really good communication, really good partnership, collaboration. And, and safety shouldn't be, you know, James, I, I find it interesting. I don't think there should be any safety leadership in organisations, you know. I think you really, what you need is really good leadership, you know. So the leadership um, tools and processes that you use in every part of your business should be a consistent leadership model to what you have in safety. There shouldn't be a different set of leadership characteristics, but what there should be is really good leadership. Mm. That, that, that's interesting. I'm conscious we're coming to, towards the end of our conversation, and I feel like we, we potentially just started another two-hour-long conversation and talking about leadership and safety leadership. But it was curious that, that um, I don't know if you listen to the Safety of Work podcast with David Program and Drew Ray, um but yeah i know david quite well yeah and um they they did an episode on that exact bit based on so so obviously if, for those that don't know the framework of their podcast is is that they take a subject they find research papers and articles that that support that subject and then they discuss that and try and come up with what based on those research articles they have what the the answer is only obviously based on what they've read um, and it is quite a fascinating podcast, but essentially they, 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 they covered that exact subject is safety leadership, just good leadership. And their kind of outcome yeah. of that based on it is that in, in essence, you, you can have a good leader, but unless that leader doesn't state safety or environment or whatever is, is important to me it won't automatically get sorted. So in, to, to your point then, is it like... Oh, yeah. Yep. So, so to your point, is it like yep. we, we, the, the lead, good leadership fundamentals is what we have, but that leader needs to be able to be seen to say, you know, a safety is a key thing for me and this business, the safety of you, etc. Yeah, it's, that's, to me, that's, that's, that's an essence of good leadership. You know, yeah. say you can't be a good leader and, and safety not be important. But mm. what you don't shouldn't have in an organisation is a set of different safe, um, of leadership characteristics that you apply putting safety hat on, and then another set of leadership characteristics when you're looking after you know you manage people. I'm you with know? you. Yeah. That makes no sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's and what I'm that's... saying. So safety is simply an outcome of good leadership, but it's not the absence of safety. Yeah. And that's similar to what we were talking about earlier in, in that kind of risk language between finance and, and, uh, and, and safety. It's exactly the same. It's safety leadership should be the same language as operational leadership, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. So I'll kind of bring this to the end, but I'll be interested in, in, in if you've got any kind of um, – maybe maybe like tips or, or tricks of like someone someone that say so we 
as part of this, your interview, this conversation is is part of a mini series around my, essentially my learning journey from safety one to safety two. What are the differences? Are there any differences? Asking these questions are in my head. But if if someone's coming to the end of this kind of um, this kind of mini series, are there any kind of things that you think you know some some key things that people need to take away and and change or or implement or or anything like that? Some kind of key tricks or tips. Well, I think that the key thing, if you do nothing else other after this conversation that we've had today, other than walk away and try putting your frame of mind in the point of curiosity, mm. um, as opposed to expertise, um, I think that's the key tip I can give anyone is just put aside you, you know, all of your experience and knowledge and, um, and all of your cognitive biases when you go into talk with um, people leading work or doing work, whether you're an engineer, whether you're on the front line, and actually try and stand there from a point of curiosity and try and see the world through their perspective. Once you do that as a safety professional, you're going to actually learn, find much more interesting things where your effort and attention will reap real rewards and benefits, not for you, but for the organisation and the people that do work. Um, it's, it's a hard thing to do, but that, that's my number one really tip to everyone is actually um, don the lens of curiosity. I love that. I love that. I think that's a, that, that's a great place to kind of finish that. Um, and that's, a, I think that's a, just a beautiful word, isn't it? Curiosity there. Uh, so if people, if people are interested in what, what you're talking about, Kelvin, and they, uh, they want to work with, you, with yourself, how, how would they do that? Where, where do you work? Do you cover, would, would you cover most of our listeners are UK-based? So do you do work over here? Yeah, so we've got presence, we've got presence in the UK, Art of Workers in the UK, based awesome. in London. Um, Nikki Crayford lead, leads our business there. We've got um, some presence in Ireland uh, as well. Um, uh, we've also got presence in the US, um, Australia. Uh, we work across Australia and New Zealand. So look, these places to come to, uh, obviously our website, um, artofwork.solutions. Um, and, um, you know, really keen to have, look, look, even if you don't have to come to us and you don't want to do business with us, we're very happy, uh, contact us and want to share some ideas or, you know, share materials and resources. Uh, again, like I said, our business is built around the open source thinking. Um, please feel free to contact us and um, uh, we'll certainly share uh, anything that we have and uh, I'm very happy to talk to anyone. You know, we're, we, we started this journey five or six years ago to build the Safety Differently um, community. And, um, um, I'm, I, and I'm really pleased, you know, when I saw your um, uh, podcast, uh, James, uh, I was thinking, going, you know, it, it's great just to see all these uh, outbreaks and engagements and things happening. That was uh, exactly the idea we had five or six years ago, you know, saying awesome. this would be great if the world looked like this in, you know, five years' time that all these different activities and uh, energy and, and um, connections were being made. So from, from our point of view, um, please please uh, come and talk with us and we're, we're happy to engage in any way. Amazing. I love that. I love that. And you're right, the world, the, the, the safety world, does start, it's seeming to become more and more open. There's more and more podcasts popping up, which is amazing. Um, there's more and more people having these conversations from, from so many different kind of cognitive diversity and, and different perspectives, et cetera, all, all mashed into one. And, 
you know, when I started podcasting not so long ago, you know, I think we're coming up to two years now, there wasn't that much out there and it was all very, very samey. Um, and there was like long-term legends in the game, like um, Safety on Tap with Andrew or, or Todd Conker's podcast. Obviously, yeah. both of those have been going extremely long yeah. times, but UK-based, there was very little. Oh, now we've got, oh God, there's a new one every day and that's amazing. And people are starting to have these conversations, which is just amazing. So I love the way you kind of, I love the way you kind of pitch that, saying that, you know what, if you want to work with us, then work with us. That's great. But you know what? We'd just love to talk to you. I, I really like that, Kelvin. Well, that's really nice to hear. Okay, dokie. So, no thank you very much, Kelvin. That was a great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed that, actually. And it's nice to get some, um, some real... You, you've got like loads of examples, like physical, actual real-life examples, which is something I think we lack in these conversations. So thank you very much for that. No worries. Happy to chat anytime. And yeah. I really appreciate the invitation, James. Okay, guys. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kelvin. Don't forget to check out next week's episode on the podcast where I reflect on this interview and I tell you my thoughts and feelings of the conversation, Give maybe give you some behind the scenes as well. I don't think there was that much behind the scenes when it comes to Kelvin. It's pretty easy, pretty good, plain, easy conversation. One of those people that really just know what they're talking about. So anyway, anyway. I'm not going to tell you that. that. That's for next week. Get used to the get used to the content structure, James. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, let us know. Hit or give us a rate and a review. If you're listening on iTunes and all that, hit follow and all those thingamajiggies. Come hit us up on any of the social medias: Twitter, rebranding safety, rebranded safety, Facebook and LinkedIn, rebranded safety, or me on LinkedIn, James McPherson. Otherwise, I'll catch you next week and my reflection of this conversation with Kelvin Gay. Safe. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson. Thank <laughs> you.